Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK, and uh, today I'm really delighted to welcome back to the programme Dr. J. Michael Bennett, otherwise known in a previous incarnation as Dr. Future of the Future Quake radio show, and uh, Dr. Bennett joined us last time to do an introduction, really, to his new book, well, sort of newish book, it's been out a little while, Two Masters and Two Gospels, volume number one, and of course I'm highly recommending that people listen to the first part of this interview before trying to cope with this one because we're going to go into a lot of historical data today. Last time we talked about the kind of spiritual stroke political landscape in America, particularly as regards conservative Christianity, conservative evangelical Christianity, of which both of us most closely identify with But in his book, he has some really harsh things to say and some severe challenges to put to his fellow believers. You know, I respect him for that. And uh, it's a compelling, interesting and challenging book. And we, as I say, we looked at the landscape last time, sometimes agreeing, sometimes gently disagreeing on these matters and constantly were saying in the conversation, yeah, we really need to look at the historical data behind that and how some of these attitudes were encouraged and perhaps even, we might say, set in stone by these historical trends. What were those historical trends? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And this is really the most significant, for me anyway, the most significant part of this book, this historical section. Now, you look at the way in which, well, the ways in which big business played a major role during the 20th century in shaping the religious life in the US so as to sort of mould the nation to really fit the interests of itself, of big business. Um, And you do say that goes quite a long way to explain some of these attitudes that we're talking about. So I do find this thesis compelling. As I said to you before the interview, I'm going to perhaps pick a few bones with you as we go through this, but you're used to that. Um, I also said to you before the interview, I don't know where to start with this. So what I'm going to do is throw this... I'm not sure whether it's a quote from your book or a paraphrase of a paragraph. I'm not sure, but this is what I have for you. In the 20th century, a sacred myth about America was crafted to foster a holy war against communism. I'll say that again. In the 20th century, a sacred myth about America was crafted to foster a holy war against communism. Okay, now if that is true, what was the reason for that? And what were the forces behind that? What was going on? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back again. That was a wonderful conversation we had in the last show that we did on more of a spiritual and ideological issue Mm. that really didn't delve into the historical underpinnings. And you said it very lucidly on where I was trying to go with this. Um, Regarding your direct question, the information on the historical work that I will cite and with my aging uh, mid-50s mind, it quickly goes. So I might have to cite my own book because uh, the exact details, which I so painstakingly document in the book. Um, and by the way, that's important for the skeptics who are the, the main people I'm targeting this book with who believe that it's poppycock. The assertions I make is that coming from an engineering standpoint, not only was I a scientist in the military, but I was also an inventor where I basically had to bring new concepts to people who were skeptics and to be able to provide enough solid scientific or other data to convince them that my premise had promise. And I try to follow that in this book Mm. by addressing the skeptic, by overwhelming historical confirmation from respected historians, people who are extremely well-educated, well-known in the field, and have had credibility for decades. And all of this information we're covering, the documented references I have in my book that people can get their own hands on, will actually verify the details. And so basically what I found from some of the scholars that I cited, such as Jonathan Herzog, whose PhD is from Stanford, even worked at the conservative Hoover Institute. In his book, The Spiritual Industrial Complex, one of my references, he very clearly shows that the actual leaders we had just after the World War II, uh, Truman and then Eisenhower, were actually fearful that Americans were going to find communism preferable to the standard capitalism of the West. 
And I know that boggles the imagination, but there was a real concern then the image that had been fostered to us of the, the long lines of food and, you know, the babushkas and all that. They hadn't really hit on that as a way to cement in the people's minds the desperation in the communist world. So when they got together behind closed doors, and this included several of the top war propaganda organizations like uh, USAID, the ones that created Radio Free Europe, and some other clandestine organizations with the administration, they came to the idea that the only thing that could help motivate Americans to resist communism was to make it a holy war Mm. and to focus on the atheism inherent in Bolshevik communism and to counter that by making it a holy crusade. And they had actually several senior clergy officials part of this planning, uh, and they created a, a group called the American Heritage Foundation. This goes back to 1947. And they had a mixture of our top clergy and CEOs from our major corporations, as well as like J. Edgar Hoover uh, and, again, some of the black propaganda organizations that we worked in the war. Like, for example, even Eisenhower was in a group that pretended to be ex-Germans that had rebelled in Germany and said there was a revolution. Well, it was all American GIs. And so they really got cultivated in producing black propaganda that went back toward the West, uh, to the Allied world. So what they did was they, they released a report after 15 months called, and this was a new title for America. And, and Julian, from the world you come from, and maybe your fellow European listeners, it may seem really curious about the American mind in its hyper-patriotism and in its conflation of the existence of the nation with some holy cause. But what the initial pages of this portion of the book show was that while if you were here in the Bible Belt where I live, it would be automatically assumed that this vision of America as an exceptional land that was basically like a new Israel, like that term were used to take on this holy cause, and that the political cause of our nation was actually always a religious one. And what I show in this book that these reports, like One Nation Under God, they actually say that there is a need, quote, a need to weld religion to democracy, and called for, quote, public comparisons between the Bible and America's most revered national documents. Uh, Even Eisenhower was saying that the supreme being is the most basic expression of Americanism. And so that's when they started to develop a mythology that to us has become legitimate history here. But it was done at this time in boardrooms and engineered. And I'll give you some examples that will. Can I, can I, yeah, I really do want to talk about examples, which would be great. What I find very interesting about this thinking in terms of the trajectory of the podcast over the years is that we've talked to Dr. Martin Erdman a number of times. And one of the times we talked to him was about civil religion. And he went back into the history of this going back millennia, (laughs) but uh, talked about the tremendous influence of these ideas in the United States. And what I find interesting about what you're saying in this book is that the notion of civil religion, which was already very developed in the US, was sort of kicked into a a higher gear with all this by wedding that to specifically anti-communism and wedding that anti-communism to a specifically Christian version or using Christian language to express that anti-communism. And at the same time, all that being fueled by the big business aspect of the United States. So I found that all fascinating how, you know, the very notion of civil religion was clearly jumped upon at that time as being a vehicle for an anti-communist ideology and promoting big business all through using the religiosity of the US. I thought that was fascinating. Right. And outside observers to the U.S. always remark about, particularly in the southern U.S., but elsewhere, that these religious elements are always part of any of our expressions. You'll notice that our sporting events often will start with prayer and a chaplain. They'll start with some other patriotic expressions and things like that. It just permeates. But a lot of these things are emphasized, particularly the historical ones, by a gentleman like David Barton who has made quite a cottage industry out of being this advisor to top officials and governments 
Uh, Glenn Beck had him on regularly, sort of became his almost de facto chaplain. But what he was selling was this idea that from George Washington, you know, with his knees in the snow, praying for divine guidance to the Puritans, to this long legacy of people who were not motivated by financial concerns, even in the revolution, being able to develop their own internal aristocracy unfettered by Britain, but that it was completely holy aims. And all of these things have become part of the institution as I was raised that we always thought went back to the founding of our nation. Uh, Things like having in God we trust on our coinage, adding one nation under God into our Pledge of Allegiance which has become a very, very important litmus test of whether you're one of us or one of them, including when our churches. Our churches normally have an American flag right there on the sacred podium. People will say a pledge of allegiance to the American flag in our churches. Mm. The uh, In God We Trust, that was added in the 1950s, is that right? All to money and to stamps? Right. It was said in Congress yeah. that it would be of psychological value. Yeah. So now this was really to like honor God or Jesus or anything like that. One one little curiosity is that the Pledge of Allegiance, which now has become, like I said, a litmus test, they'll say it in church and people will look around to see if anybody hesitates in the covenant commitment made with that pledge to see if people are truly loyal or not. Um, That was actually created by a Baptist socialist who had written a book called Jesus is a Socialist. And originally the pledge was done with the arm and a straight salute out, you know, with the palm out. And <laughs> whoops. <laughs> uh, later they realized that it looked so similar to the Nazi salute that they modified that. Yeah. But um, all of these phrases like one nation under God and God we trust were hatched by these organizations and were paid for by Wall Street by these large corporations who actually pointed up a lot of the money because they had the most to lose if capitalism was diluted. I'm talking about unbridled capitalism without social safety nets because they saw the New Deal, for example, which had jobs assistance. You know, we had a quarter of our nation out of work, almost like we are now. Um, they would have turned over in their graves, these influential people, if they'd seen the stimulus checks that went out to everybody in America. And everybody in America who's vehemently anti-government in our churches and anti-public assistance for poor people was more than happy to cash those checks recently when they got them. And they resumed their anti-government, anti-assistance as they cashed their checks. So this kind of thing was sort of new uh, then. And they were afraid that we were full-blown communists if, for example, there was an old-age pension like Social Security. And so that's why they put all the money into this program and started conflating with government was evil, yet for somehow our government was divine, or at least the people were divine (laughs) in spite of our government. You mentioned uh, how it was psychologically useful to wed religion and these phrases like, in God we trust – linked to particular political goals, economic goals, I immediately thought of one of the things that you wrote in your book about a board called the Psychological Strategy Board. Right. So this is Truman in the 1951. And as a little quote, I jotted down here that this board was set up to investigate the potential role of religion in psychological warfare. Right. Now, presumably, this is psychological warfare within the United States itself. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Which... By law, they're commanded not to do. You know, they don't mind if they confuse, poison the minds of people outside our borders, maybe even our allies. Even in England, I guess we return the favor to what the British did to us in World War II when they sent uh, Ian Fleming. And um, we're all, uh, you know, the author. Hey, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, Roald Dahl, yes. Yes, sent them yes, to America yes, yes. as spies to get us into the war. And I'm not, I'm not making a judgment whether we should have not gone into it or not. But it's amazing how this work goes on amongst our allies. Probably one of the biggest ones today is Israel, as far as putting bugs in the White House and things like that. And that's what got Bill Clinton in trouble was when Benjamin Netanyahu at Camp David 
when they were being resistant to one of the demands of Israel, he very casually let him know that he had audio of him and Monica Lewinsky. Right. And yeah. Bill Clinton happened to change his tune at Camp David and go along with the Israeli position after that revelation. So this is what goes on. Such things happen, yes. But it's supposed to be done mm. outside our borders. Mm. But you mentioned the Psychological Strategy Board. It had CIA, Department of State, Defense, others. Their purpose was to, like you said, see the potential role of religion in psychological warfare. In 1951, and what their report said was the potentialities of religion as an instrument for combating communism are universally tremendous. Religion is an established force which calls forth our men's strongest emotions. Our overall objective in seeking the use of religion as a Cold War instrumentality should be the furtherance of world spiritual health. And one of the groups that helped them was the U.S. Information and Education Exchange which was a psychological program authorized by Congress in 48 to create a favorable image of the U.S. worldwide, which included religious leaders on the council to investigate the moral and religious factors of psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. And they began building all these things which became our institutions, the In God We Trust on Our Money, like I said, the under God added things like your utility bills would actually have one nation under God put on it. They were paying for this. They were saturating television, hundreds of radio shows, television shows with big name people. This group that was to secretly create the psychological effect of America having a divine destiny even include the uh, producer Cecil B. DeMille. Mm hmm who produced the Ten Commandments movie, the oh, famous yes. Ten Commandments, uh-huh. yeah. as part of this operation. Yes, it's interesting how Hollywood does come up in this. Right. In fact, you have a, a lot of organizations and programs that come up in your book. And one that really features in a big way is the Crusade for Freedom in 1950, because it involved senators, business executives, and clergy. Right. Um, and it seemed to be about trying to sell religion to Americans as, as actually part of the Cold War effort. And the CIA figures bigly in this as well, doesn't it? Right. Well, there's a seamless connection in my writing and the details I give between groups like the CIA, other wartime propaganda groups, and the CEOs of corporations mm. who were helping craft the messages and also providing the money to do these kind of activities. One of the groups that I find fascinating is the Foundation for Religious Action and Social and Civil Order, a very dystopian kind of 1984 named Frasco, oh, yes. and it had Billy Graham involved in it, Henry Ford II, Herbert Hoover, guys like John Wayne were involved. They even produced some really interesting historical relics like the movie Red Planet Mars. I don't know if you've ever seen oh, that. No, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I've, I've seen yes, it. You, you describe it as the Martians saying they believe in Jesus or something, but, That's but right. also speaking against communism. <laughs> right. And in yeah. fact, part of their action is overthrowing communist Eastern Europe and having an Eastern Orthodox patriarch take over Russia. <laughs> right. Just your conventional, conventional kind of, you know. <laughs> but some people were getting wise to it. And I mentioned that by 1955, even the Catholic newspapers were saying that far too much loose talk about God in America is heard these days, and schemes that religion should be cultivated as a potent instrument of the Cold War, and that the Almighty has enlisted in the army of the free world. But back to your crusade for freedom, which was Mm -hmm. one of the very biggest things, Um, the idea they came up with was they had this big bell, like the Liberty Bell going around. Mm. And this crusade for freedom was to get all of America engaged, particularly small children up to the top, in this need to collectively together raise money to be able to build a radio network for what was called Radio Free Europe Mm. and later Radio Liberty to basically send out a lot of gray propaganda and even some black propaganda um, and just be absolutely clear, this is not the radio liberty of Dr. Stan Monteith. This no, is a t- no, different thing no, altogether. <laughs> no. Yeah, sure. I haven't investigated. You know, he's a friend of mine. You know, God bless him. Look forward to seeing him one day. But um, no, we don't know about the details inside there. But these activities, what they did was they even had children go collect money at school and bring their pennies. They got churches involved where you would actually come and during the church service you would read these documents of America and then you would have to sign a pledge up at the altar to fight for America and this crusade for freedom and the psychological effects of all these. If people have been involved in psychological propaganda 
they can just be amazed at the skill in which mm. these people were able to pull this off. Is that the Freedom Scroll that they had to sign? Like the Freedom Scroll, that's right. Mm. And they had documents on trains, which they emulated Lenin. Lenin had had these similar documents going around Russia. Well, they did it here with the Freedom Documents, and everybody would follow through and look at it mm. and really imprint on them. And the collection plate was going round, wasn't it? And they were collecting money for Radio Free Europe. Right. Because the idea that that was a, supposedly that was a grassroots thing. Right. Uh, whereas, in fact, it was already quite well enough funded, wasn't it, by the CIA? You, you remember the book well. Uh, <laughs> it's a classic operation of what they call AstroTurf, mm. or an artificial grassroots effort. Uh, it turns out these operations were already being funded in huge quantities and completely through the CIA within our government. But they were using the American public as dupes and as a cover story that this was something that was a grassroots operation. But they had been prodded through all of these radio programs, you know, television specials that would have famous actors like Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and others yeah. talking about the divine destiny of America. They used everything except the term holy war. But in essence, yeah. that this was a holy fight. And they would always emphasize things like free enterprise, capitalism, unfettered business. And the, these were all code words of unregulated markets and things like this. It's fascinating to me that uh, I was brought up to consider that really it was only the communists who were doing this sort of thing with their right. shortwave broadcasts right. across the world. And I used to listen to Radio Albania, uh, Radio Tirana from Albania when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I would listen to these glowing reports, you know, how many tins of mackerel or something they produced this quarter and how all the peasants were dancing in the streets and life was absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was laughable at the time. But, you know, to some extent... Everybody was doing it, weren't they? Right. <laughs> From their well, own ideological point of view. They were having to sell themselves mm. to a customer that was already paying them. You know, that's the way a lot of our businesses work when you think about it. We buy products for a certain price. They elevate the price so then they can go back and pay for expensive broadcasting back to us to tell us why we should have their product. Mm. And so we're paying the information to convince ourselves about things. Mm. That's what governments do. They do the same thing that we pay for them to send their messages, for us to follow their operation. And the people who truly benefit are people behind the scenes that you don't ever see. Yeah. And that's how this works. But you mentioned about how different we, you know, the presumption we are from communism. The main guy who was running one of these main organizations, which was called the Religion in American Life Program, and these things went on for, you know, decades, uh, was the head of General Electric. Name's Charles E. Wilson. And the thing that shocked me when I looked in his background, and, you know, this was sort of one rabbit trail after another, because I'm having to educate myself. This is stuff I didn't know. He actually, at one stage around 1950 and for several years, was arguably the most powerful man in America, because with the advent of the Korean War, which was certainly a, a serious matter, involved the United Nations, but it was certainly not on the scale of World War II. We certainly didn't have Koreans raiding our shores, attacking us, but it was something that we got that we were engaged in, like Vietnam later. But they took such a, a severe tack that while they were trying to send this message that we were free enterprise and freedom and non-planned economy, like the communists, he was put in charge of basically our entire economy. And uh, I quote a December 1950 New York Times story. That says president proclaims a national emergency, auto prices rolled back, rail strike ends, allies, and it goes on. Uh, and it basically says that President Truman picked Charles E. Wilson to in a position to basically take over what was called the Economic Stabilization Agency. And this one man had the power to set prices of all the products in America, to shut down factories, turn up other ones. The most minute items were all set. Any kind of labor interactions with big business were shut down. All the labor unions were stopped. Uh, any wage increases were stopped. And it was all done by one man who answered only to President Truman. And most Americans would be shocked that we were ever put under something like this. He was sort of a dictator of himself. He didn't answer to Congress. He didn't answer to anybody else. And so while we're trying to fight this whole communism of you know government control, socialistic control – we do it whenever we feel the need that we have to. You know, that's part of the, the message of this. Of course, there's much more, but um, I really put this part in the book. 
to help the skeptical reader's mind to see how easily we can be brought into as practicing Christians or other people, just generally moral people who I'm, I'm sure would make up much of your audience, how easily we can be brought into a mythology by voices we trust, people with a big enough media budget, and now they become just a fundamental part of who we are. The Cold War threat is gone. The immediacies of the crises they thought were existential are gone. But the legacy of what they did is still a regular part of much of our culture here in the United States. And I assume it always will be. Yes. And is presumably built upon. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing is lost in that sense. I'm sure it's still useful politically in many ways. Right. Um, One of the things they built, I just uh, concluded this, mm. they built a national mm. prayer room off of Congress mm. where they put yes. like these documents in sacred space, like a chapel, and they put in a stained glass window of George Washington on his knees in prayer. In essence, if you really just stop and think about it, they're basically giving him some kind of sainthood position, like a holy saint. And this does things to rewire the brain. Mm. I put this in there basically just to show us how susceptible we are. And the rest of this historical work shows that the big business people use these same techniques in saturation to put in a pro-wealth class message in our brains that we as faithful Christians – or other moral, decent people, don't realize how much our brains have been wired by strangers that we don't know. No, indeed. And it's very interesting that you're exploring this particular trajectory, because the one that I would think is probably more often explored would be what you might call the classically the left wing, the Marxist influence, um, the social Marxist, you know, through education, that sort of thing, which we talked about on this show. But it's interesting to see that there is this other influence going on. Uh, but you dig back more deeply into the history of this. You go back into the early 1940s. And I think it's fair to say that you really start the main part of your story here, this historical story, uh, with 1940 itself after the Great Depression, with the National Association of Manufacturers, they seem to have been a really big noise in getting this kind of thing going. We're talking about thousands of US industrialists meeting yearly to form strategy after the Depression. And they do see it as strategic to get the clergy involved in what they're doing. And there's a name that pops up who becomes a very big name, a certain Reverend James Fifield. Could you tell us about him and why he is so significant in the early part of this story? Certainly. And you're right. I'm probably one of the few authors that takes a mere 181 pages as a preface to set up the main story. But uh, the situation was felt to be dire by the big business community at that time. And the two main voices they had were the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the two biggest lobbyists by far in America. We tend to think of big oil, big tobacco, big pharma, huge gun lobby, all enormous. But really, they're all subsets of this common big business theme. And you have to think about the mindset. Uh, some of your listeners may be small businessmen, but they don't get the kind of privileges that big business do that have their own lobbying firms in Washington. These organizations are worried about anything that would clip or truncate in the slightest degree their gross profits, uh, including taxation wages that would increase, worker protection, environmental protection, yeah, yeah. Uh, worker safety. All of these start nipping away at the excess of the largesse. Mm. It's such a big money, they take a, a small part to them, but fascinating amounts of dollars yeah. to make sure that stuff never has inroads in America. But they were unsuccessful until 1940 when a rider on a white horse came in. Well, just before you say that, you'd mentioned about the listeners to this podcast. Well, they will be familiar with the subject of the corporation. We've talked about right. the massive corporation and its pathologies and how, to some extent, if it's considered to be a, a legal person, then it's a psychopath um, <laughs> on that analogy with the person. Right. And, of course, the documentary The Corporation is excellent for pointing that out. Oh, okay. So, yes, uh, people will be on board with the kind of thing you're talking about. You know, we're not talking about the small business. We're not talking about the family business. We're talking about these massive corporations which right. are legally obliged to make 
make profit over any other consideration, and that is hugely problematic. So, yes, indeed. Right. And legally, they're required. They're required. The family business actually looks their employees in the eye. Hmm. They know the family members. They know the problems their children are having. They understand when people need a little extra time off to deal with a family emergency. There's a relationship between the labor and ownership. Hmm. Hopefully, they tend to share a little bit of the wealth uh, when they have good years, things like that. All healthy things. Hmm. But as you rightly mentioned, a corporation is sort of like a golem. It has no soul. It has no conscience. By legal requirement, its only existence is to look out for the well-being of the shareholders. And in, in real practice, it's tighter than that because a lot of your shareholders that have money in their 401k and aren't at the business meetings, they're sort of the marks. The people who on the inside know when to sell stock and when to buy it back. A rise in stock prices is not how these people make money. They rise because they know in a moment when it's going to go up for a while to buy it just before then, and they know when it's going to drop and they sell it before then. So it's not even, it's really a subset of the corporation. But when you take all these golems who are not even elected, I mean, we don't even really have the accountability of elections for this institution. When they get together, they pool their virtually infinite supply of money. They can do a lot. Um, but by 1940, they were still smarting because they were widely seen. Their hubris, their greed were seen as being responsible for the 1920s, the roaring 20s, the excesses. They wanted no regulations on banks, on other business practices. And inevitably, just like it did in 2008 globally, it all collapsed. And we had unemployment at 25 percent. We were at such a critical stage at that point where we could have had the things that happened in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. When people get desperate and out of work, all sorts of radical ideologies become feasible. When people are desperate, you're at a tipping point. And we see Germany as a case where these things happened. And I believe part of the New Deal was not only just an act of mercy – not handouts for people, but to find people jobs, to go build our roads, clear forests, do other kind of works, to build our national parks, but also to temper this potential of radical overthrow of our government and its ideology out of desperation of the people. But the people still had this horrible taste in their mouth about the big business that got them into this plight. And all of the PR efforts they had done had been of no assistance They were starting to throw big money in it in the late 30s, going nowhere. And then James Fifield shows up. And James Fifield was a pastor of the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. He was known as the apostle to the millionaires or pastor to the millionaires or the 13th apostle of big business. This is how he was known in the press. And he focused on what we would call today the prosperity gospel. Not the kind of ridiculously absurd phony stuff we've seen in the TV preachers, but really focusing on a prosperity message, maybe a little bit closer to a Joel Osteen kind of thing. Um, But he was very theologically liberal. He didn't care about the details of the atonement or the details of our faith. He said, really, all the Bible's not to believe all this stuff about taking care of the poor, blessed are the poor. He said all that kind of stuff. He says, with the Bible, you just have to find the meat and spit out the bones. And he said that kind of stuff really wasn't of value. And so he took a message that the Pharisees had that if you were very, very wealthy, that was a sign of God's endorsement for you. So all these wealthy CEOs went to his church. Even Cecil B. DeMille, who I mentioned before, was a part of it. And all of the players that later became a key role in selling this pro-business message and constructing this new gospel – had affiliation with his church. So he showed up, and it says that he electrified the crowd. It was broadcast on national radio. And he taught them, if you are going to win the hearts and minds of the American public, you're going to have to go through the only institution that still has any credibility with them, and that was the clergy. And he says, your pro-business message is going to have to be fashioned, and the dangers of the New Deal The dangers of, like, the things that were just anathema to them and were this pure sign that we fully embraced communism were things like having a minimum wage or having an old age pension or having veterans benefits. 
These were all things that they said, well, this is full pagan statism that you would take care of any of these things because they really wanted no taxes for anything like that, any of these activities. And so he says it needs to be constructed where we're going to make it a holy cause and we're going to make our spokesmen our clergy. And he was very influential. Am I right in thinking you say he wrote quite a lot in a magazine called Faith and Freedom in the 1940s? Faith and Freedom, I went back and checked my notes, it really started around 1949. Uh-huh. And he had already been busy. He'd formed this spiritual mobilization organization in the late 30s okay. to talk about, um, and this is what the business people really liked, was that government was inherently evil. Now, I have been around a lot around Christian libertarianism, which this guy is considered the founder of. Um, in all of the alternative Christian media, Patriot Radio, things like that, people that you and I would love, Radio Liberty, Another guy I really love, Will Grigg, uh, who's just uh, since uh, gone to be with the Lord. Oh, has he? Uh-huh. Man I admire. Um, in fact, I did a blog post in his honor the other day. But um, these people who we've revered and are still very active in Christian radio and on the Internet and podcasts and things, they embrace this information and in that the government inherently is evil on its own. And these were the people who birthed this message. And the reason why was the government was starting to be a gatekeeper of these excesses that brought down us into the Great Depression, that wiped out our banks with people jumping off the ledges of their buildings, and brought destitution to not only our nation, but globally. They wanted things like they were, just like, for example, in 2008, there were a lot of regulations on Wall Street on selling liar loans and bundling toxic bonds and mortgages with others. Well, they've been since then able to get rid of all those with a lot of lobbying and things like that. And that's what these guys wanted. But these guys made it a message that the Bible suggested that government inherently was evil, which is not supported by the Bible. I've going copious examples in my book. Uh, of course, corrupt government is. Government that's done for private interests versus the well-being of the people, that's corrupt. But they said the institution itself and its desire to look out for the common good of people in terms of worker safety or polluting the environment that would affect entire communities or nation. These kind of things were spiritually evil. And spiritual mobilization and eventually their party organ, Faith and Freedom, uh, began to really solidify this theology or gospel, as I call it. And they hit it with full force, and they were tremendously successful. A large percentage of our entire clergy were receiving these documents and were changing their sermons. In fact, they went so far as to have sermon competitions where they would pay clergymen under the table in these competitions to preach the strongest uh, (laughs) pro-business, anti-government message from their pulpits. Mm. And they could actually receive large cash awards, which, as I mentioned, is – what the Bible consistently shows is the way of Balaam, Balaam the prophet, who was a prophet for hire to give a message that the, that the king wanted. I think it would be a good idea to give people an idea of just how many ministers did receive faith and freedom. You put the number down as 10,000 ministers were getting this magazine every month across the U.S. And it increased uh, beyond that. It actually increased. That was uh, in 1947. Right. <laughs> so, but it, it went long beyond that, didn't it? By the mid-50s. Um, we had many scores of tens of thousands that were getting it. I think at one early stage, they had at least 15% of the clergy, all regular, devoted, paying readers. That's a critical mass that's far higher than, say, a Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity here in the people that he reaches, and we know the effect that they have on our culture. But when they had their sermon competitions, it says that they had double the amount of entrance. Mm. So we're closer to, you know, even up to possibly a third of clergymen preaching sermons to get cash prizes. It's extraordinary, yeah. Now, there's another organization after James Fifield's that I talk about that created a, a magazine called Christian Economics. Theirs was even larger. Howard Kirshner was the gentleman behind that, another name that people don't know today. He had many, many tens of thousands reading his Christian Economics with the same exact message. It was a pro-colonialism message, as I mentioned, the good old days at the what they call the investor nations, which are means the ones that exploit, you know, colonial labor like British and the Americans and the 
Belgians, even Congo, places like that. This was the real prototype and model of the way the world should be ordered. This went to our conservative clergy, and their messages began to change. Before this time, pastors were really starting to talk about how shameful it was that in the era of the robber barons and the Gilded Age, the majority of people and workers were stuck in squalor in cities with no education. Children were working in mines. No one had any kind of health care. The average age of a person and their longevity before they died in America in 1900 was the age 35. This is after we had had much advances in medicine and all sorts of other infrastructure, but it wasn't coming down to the common people. And so churches were realizing that if you're telling people that God loves you and I love you, that they had an obligation to reach out to these people that were living in tenements, dying of preventable diseases, even tuberculosis or simple things. And so they were getting involved, and this big business arrangement with Fifield and Kirshner had to put a stop to that. And they were very, very successful. And the gentleman who was the main bankroller amongst all of the other big businesses that I list in here of A-list companies that were actually paying clergymen was J. Howard Pugh, mm. which a lot of people may not know, but he was a founder of what we know now as the Pugh Charitable Trust where if you actually see uh, polling on religion in American or global life, the Pew Charitable Trust are your main polling operations, like the Gallup organizations. But they fund large things. They were the founders. J. Howard Pew was the main bankroller of Christianity Today. Did you say that he was also involved in that so-called business plot? Yes, that's that, right. Uh, uh, Smedley he, Butler, well, he blew it all apart, didn't he? This was he, the coup, which didn't happen, but... Uh, well. Pew was involved in that. They got close. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's anybody that belongs on Mount Rushmore in our nation, it's Medley Butler, mm -hmm. most decorated soldier, I believe, in American history, if I remember correctly. But he was involved in a lot of the battles in the early 20th century where we overthrew the banana republics and things like that. And finally, after a while, he realized that he was being used by big business. In his books like War is a Racket and things like that, hmm. he found, for example, the war in Philippines was to basically clear out the way because the government was preparing standard oil to come in and take over oil fields in that part of Asia. And he, he mentions in that book, he says, uh, hmm. if we're going to shed our soldiers' blood for these corporate businesses like standard oil, then we need to really fly another flag when we go into battle, maybe one with an oil pump on it. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started sinking into him that he had been used. Smedley Butler was a friend of the foot soldier. And when they had not been given, the World War I vets hadn't been given their benefits, they went and peaceably came and did a demonstration in Washington and set up a little orderly plot where they lived for a while right there in front of Congress to remind them they had not been given their benefits that had been promised them for going to war. And Smedley Butler had came, encouraged them, if they just hung in there, that their act would make a difference. Well, shortly after that, President Hoover sent in uh, MacArthur, who actually commissioned Patton to go in at Bayonet Point against our World War I veterans and chase them out at Bayonet Point under attack. And actually, there were some young people killed in the process from it. And so um, these businessmen, this cabal of something called the American Liberty League, uh, of which J. Howard Pugh, a funder of most of our Christian enterprises, he was a funder in it, um, the head of General Motors, E.F. Hutton, the financial giant, um, the Morgan Bank organization, um, the DuPont family were the main people behind it, and others. They approached through a intermediary approached Smedley Butler about basically being part of a coup to overthrow FDR and to make him a puppet and to put Butler in as the main controller of our government. And they had all the World War I vets they thought he would get as foot soldiers. And the DuPonts already had a contract with Remington Arms where they could provide over 100,000 guns to be able to do this overthrow. And at the time they were ready to start, he went to Congress they had the Dixon hearings at Congress. Well, the press excoriated him. They thought he was a crank, even though he was a war hero. And the, the congressional report said everything he said is true. 
And the only thing we couldn't prove was proven out by the testimony of the men who interacted with him, that there was a plan to form almost like a brown shirt kind of thing like the SA in Germany to overthrow things. And so these are the kind of things that guys like J. Howard Pugh, who, who, who was um, – he made the company into what we know as Sunoco, one of the main oil companies. I don't know how well-known they are in the UK, but one of their big oil areas is in the North Sea. But his father originally founded it, and J. Howard Pugh Jr. was the one who built it into a national monolith and a challenge to the Rockefellers, actually. Operations, including down in Southern California, where all of this activity gravitated. And that's the one interesting thing about Southern California. We have been cultivated to believe that it's just the home of all sorts of new age kookery, which there's plenty there. And in fact, if you watch a lot of the stuff that we may watch at our Christian edgy kind of stuff, like your audience and mine and other people in our networks, this kind of stuff emphasizes all the new age and witches and everything else taking over. And most of that is produced in Southern California because a lot of that goes on. But what people don't understand is that this hyper pro big business hard right activity is also headquartered in that same Orange County, greater perimeter of Los Angeles area. And it was solidified from at least the 30s on. That's where things like the John Birch Society really was the main base of operations for the John Birch Society and all of these other movements. So it's an incredible melting pot. I call it a second burned over district, like what we had in upstate New York, where all these alternative religions were birthed. First the Shakers, the Mormons, uh, spiritualism, several other ones came out of there. Well, the same thing has happened in Southern California, but not just the far left, but also the far right. In J. Howard Pugh, who makes very, very clear in the writings that I quote him from, you know, he, he was a very serious practicing religious person, hmm. Presbyterian church, uh, very hardcore Calvinist. But all of his rationale for what he did was to promote that government was evil, that regulation was evil, uh, environmental safety was evil, that was earth worship if you tried to stop pollution. Um, and these institutions were triggered and given that mandate. For example, even later in, in the mid-50s, when spiritual mobilization kept getting more and more new age, still very hardcore libertarian, but new age, Pew switched over and was convinced by Billy Graham and a couple of colleagues to form Christianity Today. And one of the criterias J.R. Pugh had for funding Christianity Today was that it had to have a pro-big business message and they agreed with him. And in the quotes I have from Billy Graham, they promised him that they would take on that message. Mm. So they already had certain ground rules before they ever opened their mouths with spiritual direction. Yeah, this business about uh, spiritual mobilization, the organization moving in a more new agey kind of direction, was one aspect of the book that I, I found quite surprising, but also perhaps less convincing than everything you just talked about, because, I mean, what you've just been talking about is well documented in your book. And as I say, I think it's the strongest part. And I think it's something that everybody should wrestle with. Go and read the book and, and just see how much information is actually documented there to see if there really were these kinds of influences there that have helped to shape the kind of Christianity that you talk about. Um, but then the idea that spiritual mobilization moves in this more new agey direction. I don't doubt that that happened because you also document that. But to what extent that move then had an influence upon contemporary Christianity in the US? I'm less convinced by that, but perhaps, you know, you can talk about this. Uh, perhaps you could first of all tell us in what ways, well, you, you call it Gnosticism in the book, in what ways that organization and people connected with that did move in this more Gnostic direction. And then a little later, perhaps you could tell us how, if you do indeed think that is the case, it did have an influence upon Christianity today. I don't mean the magazine, I mean Christianity as it's expressed mm -hmm. in the US today. Sure. Well, I don't dispute anything you just said. Um, mm -hmm. What is not questioned, I don't believe, are the facts of what happened. Mm -hmm. The thing that is worthy of debate is what impact did it have on the average Christian? Mm. That's a fair question to ask. Yeah. Um, and I think its impact is very subtle. And it's not just on the Christian community. The other people in your audience who don't consider themselves Orthodox Christian or regular practicing or maybe not religious at all, it's even had some subtle impacts in the people who may have impacted them. 
because it began to infiltrate the broader libertarian movement, which is a movement that had an important effect on me in the middle and latter half of my radio show production, Future Quake. I began to be exposed to the fundamentally just sound, common sense premises of the libertarian movement. And the way I would phrase it now when people ask, what do you think about it? Because most of the people that I was around in my community still are right there in the middle of that. And the way I phrase to them now after I've done this further study and how it impact their community is that I came to a garden called libertarianism. And when I looked in that garden, I found some beautiful flowers in it. And some of the main flowers were the right of free association, the right of non-coercion and self-determination. And I picked those flowers, but when I dug deeper down, I found a whole lot of weeds. And so what I did was I took those flowers, kept them, and I kept on walking. And what I find in the history is that you have really two main elements that were sort of the subtext and the foundation of the libertarian movement that has a very, very strong Christian variant that's still very strong today. And one of the weeds, I call it, is the Ayn Rand movement, hyper-libertarianism that basically glorifies selfishness and individualism to the point of being a cult. It begins by refuting the whole premise in the Bible about being our brother's keeper. Any kind of collectivist idea by means of responsibility to your neighbor is non-existent in that movement. Hmm. And I began to realize that not only is that the foundation of what we would know as social Darwinism, where the stragglers of the herd are going to be left behind, Mm. but it really just goes into full-blown Luciferianism, which is no more than the highest elevation of selfishness. And in fact, if it's not in this book, then I will cite it in my second one. I think it may have been this one. Uh, Fox News had an article from the ideological chief of the Ayn Rand Society who was their philosophical head of preserving her ideals, what she taught. And he writes in Fox News that America has to choose to follow either Jesus or Ayn Rand. And he very clearly points out that the two are markedly different. And he says this teaching about Jesus, about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, is antithetical to Ayn Rand libertarianism. And that America was at a crossroads, and he hoped they made the right choice and rejected this duty to your fellow man, worrying about the weak and these kind of things. And it ran without controversy. In fact, at that time, we had strong leaders that were strongly supported by the Christian organizations like uh, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of their House, you know, having signs that says Ayn Rand was right. The Tea Party that came through America, they were filled with signs. Ayn Rand was right and sort of lifting up the teaching and Atlas Shrugged and things like that. But they don't really bother to read what really made it tick. So that was one side of it. The other side that's even lesser known was the migration that these people did. And I think the reason why was that they so had to butcher the Bible to take out all of the things about blessed are the poor and our obligations to the poor and the needy and the stranger and the immigrant and watch out for the rich. Uh, even James talked about be careful of the rich when they come in. These are the people that are going to drag you into court. Even back into his time, he wrote this. When they had to excise all of that out of their theology, they had to replace it with something because there wasn't much of the good news left. And so what they began to do was to adopt other leaders that had, for lack of a better term, Gnostic views, hidden teaching, secret teaching, elevation to self-deification, and this goes back to at least the 40s, 1950s, when this began. And so a lot of the major organizations that people who follow libertarianism closely were all influenced by this teaching. Uh, One of the gentlemen, uh, Mr. Reed, I mentioned in there, that formed the Foundation for Economic Education, he's one of the founding fathers of the libertarian movement. Most of his work is protected at uh, Lou Rockmore's site, the Mises Institute, regular on radio, conservative radio. This teaching is preserved there where it talks about they reject Orthodox Christianity. Uh, they reject things like the atonement, things like this. And I quote the main leaders in there saying this. 
but they do believe in this hidden teaching and these gurus from the East that showed them how to illuminate their minds. In fact, Leonard Reed even taught about you would need to do things like walk in circles in your office and keep doing laps to let this other voice come in. And the gentleman who took over for James Fifield at Spiritual Mobilization and Faith and Freedom was another businessman who headed – he was the attorney for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And that's where they get all these people, either the National Association of Manufacturers, which, by the way, is where Robert Welch that founded the John Birch Society. He was a top official in the National Association of Manufacturers, sort of birthed his ideology. One of his founders was uh, Fred Koch, uh, who was the father of the Koch brothers. And they have been certainly the most successful in taking this libertarian approach in recent generations and, and a main focus of volume two of my book. But uh, um, well, if I may, uh, I think we may be losing people a bit here, um, possibly even losing me a bit. Um, you know, many, many names, many, many interconnections, all sorts of things going on here that I think it's getting a bit, perhaps a bit too convoluted to follow in an interview context. Um, well, I know I'm getting to a lot of things here. And one thing leads to another because I don't want to mislead the audience here. And I really have not allowed you to interject. And I apologize to you. And I know we're getting late in the interview. Was there anything that you wanted to ask me right now since I know we're getting to the end of this show? Well, of course, I, I do indeed have a lot of things that I would like to ask you. There's still so much more ground to cover in this uh, massive book of yours. But I think maybe we have reached the point where, well, you know, reading the book itself is, is probably the best way to go from here. Um, I think we have reached as it were, that point of saturation for this couple of audio interviews. So perhaps we should bring it to a close now and uh, simply end by issuing that challenge to our good listeners to go and read the book, uh, brace themselves for the experience to some extent, uh, to agree, uh, disagree, feel a sense of relief, um, a sense of outrage maybe even at times, but uh, most important of all, to be prompted to introspect and ask those crucial questions. Is this true? If so, have I been affected? And what am I going to do about it in the way I walk with God? And I do want to make it clear before we end there, as you were speaking, I, d I didn't get the impression that you are implicating everybody in the issues that you bring up. Um, you're identifying trends, you're identifying influences, and it's important to be aware of those. So I don't want anybody to misunderstand what you're saying here. Um, is that right? You're not trying to pin the blame on everybody, are you? Uh, well, thank you for letting me clarify that. I really appreciate that. Not only do I agree with you, I actually say that in the book, at the beginning of the book. A lot of people, when they get into the weeds of the book, they forget it. But some of the worst and most egregious influences and things, I don't want to give the impression that every single professing Christian in America or anywhere else is deeply involved in the darkest aspects of this or participants in some of the claims. We live in an era right now where sometimes – you really have to make strong statements just to be able to get people's attention to think. And it can leave the misimpression that you're not being measured mm. in what you say. Mm. And I don't – my goal is to not offend people to the extent of not being productive for us. I do believe that a Christian, as a matter of practice, when they hear things like this, should just really look objectively in their heart and see, has any of this influence, even subtly or in a small extent – affected some aspects of how I look at my neighbor, how I look at the poor, how I look at other people. There may be a lot of good in your heart. You may be good, decent people doing a lot of good things, and it may not be as applicable to you. But I think if you're an introspective person by nature, which all Christians should be, we can always soul search and find how some of this stuff in different ways involves each of us to varying degrees. And so I appreciate you letting me clarify that I'm, I'm not coming in with fire and brimstone against my fellow believers here. I would like them to just entertain the thought, look at the information I have. And I, I want to apologize to the listeners and you that I get down a lot of rabbit trails even when I talk about this. <laughs> but my goal, I have good intentions in that I know the questions that ask your listener. And I try my best and as succinctly as I can to try to address some of the things they may ask in their mind to make sure they don't misunderstand and know that I have – thought and question what they're questioning, but it tends to be verbose, and I have probably gone over you, but this has been one of my all-time favorite interviews that I have done, and it's been a privilege to be on your show, and it's a privilege to take your listeners' time, and um, can I mention to them where they can at least find the book? 
Uh, well, I was going to ask you that, but you've preempted me. So yes, by all means, do. Where can we get well, this book? The only reason I did is because I forget sometimes at the interview to do it myself. Um, <laughs> yes. the, the book is called Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News. And it's at the usual haunts. Amazon in paperback or Kindle. Barnes & Noble has it in paperback in the Nook uh, EPUB. And they also have two hardcover versions. Hmm. And so um, every detail in this book won't apply to everybody. But I want to encourage people to always be the harshest critic of yourself. Shake everything so that that which cannot be shaken remains. It's a painful process. But if you're going to be vibrant, it's something you have to do. And it's just part of the call wave as Christians. And so I love everybody out there in the listenership. I want us all just to be effective in our spiritual lives internally and also to being a good neighbor to our people outside our ranks. And there are good people out there. A lot of them are your listeners. And they have a right to expect the best out of us for what we claim to be. And that's really what my goal is. Absolutely. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on the show, Dr. Bennett. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Well, love you, brother. You take care. Thanks for all your time. Okay. okay. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.